Good evening, and welcome to the John F. Kennedy Junior Forum. I'm Maggie Williams. I'm the director of the Institute of Politics here at Harvard. Tonight, we discuss the grave threat of the Zika virus and strategies to address it. Our discussion will be led by a panel of distinguished medical and public health experts and moderated by Sheila Burke, who has focused her lifetime of leadership on a clear mission, protecting public health and improving health care for people here at home and around the world. Sheila is the adjunct lecturer in public policy and faculty research fellow at the Wiener Center for Social Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. She served as the executive dean of the Kennedy School from 1996 to 2000. For over a decade, Sheila was chief of staff to Senate Majority Leader Bob Dole and was deputy staff director of one of the most powerful committees in Congress, the Senate Committee on Finance. Sheila is a member of the Institute of Medicine at the National Academy of Sciences and is a fellow at the National Academy of Public Administration and the Academy of American Nursing. She also serves on many commissions and boards, but inc including the Kaiser Institute's Commission on the Future of Medicaid and the Uninsured. Uh, she earned her master's in public administration here at the Kennedy School and earned her nursing degree at the University of San Francisco. We are fortunate to have as our moderator tonight a mom, a nurse, an educator, and the caring public policy leader and my friend, Sheila Burke. Just like I wrote it. Thank you, Maggie. <laughs> thank you all for being here, and my thanks to our panel um, who are gathered here this evening to discuss uh, an issue of great concern to all of us. In a January 2016 article uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, Tony Fauci described the Zika virus as the most recent of four unexpected arrivals of viral diseases in the Western Hemisphere in the last 20 years. He, like many others, asks if this in fact reflects a new pattern in disease emergence. Pandemics cause devastation in lives, uh, in livelihoods, as much as do wars, financial crisis, and climate change. The plague, cholera, and smallpox killed millions. In the last 100 years, the Spanish flu of 1918, the, a the HIV AIDS crisis killed more than 100 million people. SARS in 2002, Zika, in 2007, cholera in 2008, H1N1 in 2009, cholera again in 2010 along with measles, MERS in 2012, Zika, Ebola, and chikungunya in 2013, which brings us to today. Zika is a virus that was incidentally recognized and identified in 1947 in Uganda in the course of mosquito and primate surveillance. Uh, it was occurring at the time in tropical areas with large mosquito populations. Africa, the, the Americas, Southern Asia, and the Western Pacific. At the time, the virus rarely caused a spillover to humans. There have been sporadic cases since that time, and in, ninth, in 2007, the first documented outbreak in the Pacific. Zika has now circled the globe. Following the outbreak of Ebola 
and the widely held view globally, I believe, that we were ill-prepared for such infectious disease issues, an effort was made to develop a framework for the management of such crisis. Today, in fact, the WHO published a six-month plan to coordinate a multinational response to the spread of Zika, illustrating lessons that were learned from Ebola. The agency said it would need $56 million to fund the efforts, which includes a so-called global strategic response framework and a joint operation plan to bring into line agencies and experts to surveil the virus, its impact, and immediate response to it, and including the development of research. It aims to include and improve vector control, communicating the risks, guidance and protection measures, provide medical care to those affected, and fast-track research in the development of vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics. Of the total funds, 25 million will go to the effort of WHO, Asia's Surveillance Group, and the Pan American Health Organization. Another 31 would fund the work of key partners. In the interim, WHO said it had tapped a recently established emergency contingency fund to finance its initial operations. Managing the response to the Zika virus contrasts with the fragmented and delayed action that in fact responded to Ebola. This evening, we're gonna have the opportunity to examine how well prepared we really are, what we know about the most recent virus, its transmission, identification, and the possibility of a vaccine. We'll examine the challenges in keeping the public informed, and we'll ask about the lessons of Ebola and how our state and our federal government should respond and whether, in fact, we are prepared for this most recent problem and what the preventive measures ought to be. So we have three people with us who are uniquely prepared to be able to talk about each of these issues with us. Michael Van Roonen is the director of the Harvard Humanitarian Initiative at Harvard University. Uh, he has worked as an emergency physician and health specialist in over 30 countries affected by war and disease. Uh, including Darfur, Chad, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. He's worked in the field as an expert uh, and has provided information to the WHO and worked with them in the past. We also have with us Dr. Howard Zucker, um, who is the Commissioner of Health for the State of New York. Uh, if any of you are old enough to remember the show Doogie Howser, who remembers Doogie Howser? Okay, one person, two people. <laughs> Howard was, in fact, the basis upon which the Doogie Howser store was developed. I didn't know that. No, that's not it. <laughs> <laughs> Howard graduated from medical school at 22 um, and uh, trained in pediatrics, anesthesiology, and critical care, and pediatric cardiology at Hopkins, University of Pennsylvania, and Harvard. Uh, before joining the state health department, uh, Howard was the professor and pediatric anesthesiologist at Einstein. He has served as the director of the pediatric ICU at uh, New York Presbyterian and on the faculty of both Columbia and Cornell. Uh, his previous public service positions, which make him particularly uniquely uh, able to help us in this issue as well as his current position, uh, he was a White House fellow, the deputy assistant secretary for health at HHS, and the assistant general of the World Health Organization. Uh, so again, he served as an IOP fellow here uh, at the Kennedy School uh, and has uh, 
essentially dealt with these issues in a whole variety of places uh, and can bring that unique perspective to our discussion. And then Helen Branswell, who is also with us, is a senior writer at STAT, which is a Boston-based life sciences news website, which is owned by the Boston Globe and covers infectious diseases uh, and global health. Uh, she has been a reporter for more than three decades, most of it in her native Canada, and has experienced a whole variety of these issues, including the SARS problems that confronted Toronto and Canada some years ago. Uh, she spent the summer embedded at the, uh, de essentially the disease, Center for Disease Control uh, and was a Neiman Fellow here at Harvard. So all three of my colleagues are gonna talk with us about uh, their concerns and what we know about these issues, but I'm gonna ask each of them to give brief remarks uh, and then I'll ask them a few questions and then we will open it up for discussion. Mike, let me begin with you. Thank you, Sheila, and thank you for the opportunity to talk to the group and to be with this distinguished crowd, and uh, welcome everyone. It's great to talk with you today. Um, I'm gonna give you a couple disclaimers. Disclaimer number one is that my position in this is pretty practical. I'm an emergency physician and chair of the emergency department at Brigham and Women's Hospital, and so my, my role is kind of as a frontline physician, and in my work in humanitarian uh, settings around the world, it's also been on the ground. And so my approach is going to be less as a virologist and more as a pragmatist in the way we sort of address and think about these issues. My second disclaimer is that I worked in the ER today, so I didn't read all the news today. So there's probably, <laughs> given the velocity of the news that's coming out, you're probably ahead of me. So if you, if you, you know, catch anything that I missed, just let me know. Um, well, first let's talk about Zika as an entity. Zika is an arbovirus or a virus that is spread by a, a vector. That vector is the Aedes mosquito. Um, it's an interesting mosquito in that it's typically a day-biting mosquito that um, is in urban settings. So it follows the path of like dengue and chikungunya compared to say malaria, for example. The Anopheles mosquito is a night-biting mosquito or a dusk-biting mosquito and they behave a little bit differently. The Aedes mosquito is a, a little bit more aggressive, um, and so you have to protect yourself during the day. So that will come to bear later on. Um, Zika's interesting also in that it's um, mostly asymptomatic. So, uh, you know, eight out of 10 people, or I guess four out of five people that get it don't know you have it, never know you have it. So it makes identifying the illness, um, and if you have it, very difficult to do because you'll never know that you have it. So when we talk about testing in symptomatic patients, it doesn't really make sense, right? Because most people who get it are asymptomatic. Um, how is it spread? It's spread typically by these day-biting mosquitoes that will, will spread the disease, but it also can be spread by sexual transmission. So people who are infected with the virus can spread it um, by uh, sexual contact, so that's one way. Presumably, probably by bl blood transfusions as well, although I don't know if it's demonstrated or not. Um, it, all right, so it has been, good. Um, um, and the, the spread of the virus has been explosive. So we've seen the, you know, the spread of the epidemic um, having been self-contained for 50 years or nearly self-contained for 50 years, um, now move to our hemisphere and certainly advance rapidly. Um, and it will continue to advance into the southern United States, and we, we will see growing number of cases in the United States, certainly. Um, some of the fear is that the virus can then leap over to other species of mosquito that populate the rest of the United States as well. So there's every reason to believe and to um, predict that Zika will be you know, part of us and nationally and part of our, um, our healthcare system as well. Um, is it treatable? 
The answer is no. It's a viral infection that is not treatable. Is it detectable? Yes, but it's tricky, right? So there's a couple tests for the, the Zika virus. Uh, um, one is a PCR assay, and one of them is an IgM uh, assay. Um, the, both tests are fraught with difficulty because they are, um, the IG, I'm sorry, the PCR testing is difficult to detect. You need a, a very small amount of viremia in order to, uh, I'm sorry, a small period of viremia in order to test for it, which means that you could have the infection and pass over that period of viremia and test negative, right? IgM, for example, is difficult because it cross-reacts with a lot of things like dengue and chikungunya or if you've had uh, yellow fever vaccination. So none of the testing is easy. So if you test positive for it, um, you may have the disease. If you test negative for it, you still may have the disease. And testing is not readily available. It's a reference lab. Matter of fact, I was, we were talking today, I was uh, working at the Brigham in the ER today prior to coming here. And so I decided to get a Zika test and to figure out if I could get tested. And so I was informed that I had to make an appointment with OB first, the OB department. They're the only ones that can actually order it. I had to make out a requisition. I had to get counseled first to discuss it. I have to send a serum and a urine sample to get it tested. And they'll send it to a reference lab and it was gonna take about three and a half weeks to get back. So by, by the time I got an appointment and got the test, it was gonna be a month and a half before I found out. I decided not to get tested. So, um, so it's tricky, it's, uh, it's tricky. And finally, um, what are our best tools to sort of think about stopping and controlling this? The first one would be vaccination, right? So vaccine is one like the yellow fever vaccination or similar flavivirus type vaccinations um, are not developed and won't be developed in the short order. So we can talk about vaccines a little bit later, but it's going to be a while before we see a vaccine that's available. And uh, Helen and I were talking, the economics of vaccine development too are such that it may never be developed. So we'll discuss that probably later. Um, the best ways to think about controlling this is going to be just primary prevention. First of all, vector control, spraying, and getting rid of mosquitoes. Very tricky as well because these are mosquitoes that need little areas to breed in. They breed in cups of water and underturned tires and urban areas where it's a lot more difficult to try to uh, um, control these. Um, and secondly, it's individual practices that will help protect your household and yourself. Um, particularly that of pregnant women. And that's the last thing I'll say is that what are the health consequences? Aside from the asymptomatic consequences of, um, in people that are infected, the, the big worry, as you all know, is the, the worry that an increasing evidence, although not definitive evidence, that it can lead to neurologic outcomes in uh, fetuses, including uh, microcephaly and the complications as it relates to microcephaly. Um, I think that's been shown to be correlated but not definitively proven, so there's some work to be done there as well, um, as well as some other possible neurologic outcomes in, uh, in utero, as well as a possible link to Guillain-Barre, which is a neurologic disorder as well. Um, I'm not going to go into how we do further screening and testing. I think that'll probably come up with, with questions. Um, some of the surveillance around if you have Zika and if you can demonstrate the risk and you get follow-up testing and how you get ultrasound to determine if you have microcephaly. Those are things that will probably come out in question, so I won't go so far into that right now. Um, but to suffice it to say that the nature of this one is going to be difficult because of the asymptomatic nature in most patients, the difficulty in screening, the late uh, positive testing that we get in ultrasound screening, and uh, the difficult nature of controlling this particular mosquito and this particular virus. Howard. Sure. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for having me here. 
you know, as Sheila mentioned, there's plague, there's cholera, there's SARS, H1N1, you've heard of all of these, H5N1, um, Zika. And I think that pandemics are not new, so we've had them for a while. Uh, they've been around all through history, but they seem to be happening more frequently. But part of it is also that we are much more interconnect interconnected as a world, right? It used to be that some things came across the ocean and it took, uh, you know, months to come across and things didn't spread as quickly. But now you can get on an airplane and you're, you're anywhere you want to be in the world within, within a day. Even as far, you know, even if you were to fly to Australia, you'll still get there within a day. Um, and besides morta uh, morbidity and mortality, there are other things that can happen when you have these pandemics, right? So it can affect uh, economic issues as well. And, and as a matter of fact, SARS is a good example. Uh, when SARS happened, everyone was concerned about uh, Toronto and, and the airport and, and travel. You know, their economy or their tourist component of their economy uh, went down. And it went down for a while until it came back up. Uh, so global problems uh, really sometimes uh, have many different, uh, has impacts in different ways, and needs global, uh, global solutions. And a lot of this is really a coordinated international effort. Uh, we've seen this before, we've done this before. A lot of times things begin locally, they spread into a global issue. Um, global uh, organizations uh, tackle this, like the World Health Organization and, and others. And there are many more, and we could talk about this in the Q&A, there are many different organizations today that are involved in, in global health responses than there were 20 or even 10 years ago. Uh, and then, and the response sometimes ends up where the, the, the message could be global, but it ends up that locally a lot of things have to change. And we could talk a little bit about what the roles of state versus federal uh, are as well. Uh, Research uh, continues to go move forward on, on viruses, but things don't move as fast as people want. Sometimes you know, we, uh, the press wants an answer right away, the public wants an answer right away, but, but research takes a, a period of time, and these things are, are not so easy. Think about it, these viruses wouldn't have lasted in nature for so long <coughs> if they weren't, uh, you know, one, a little uh, finicky, and also uh, able to adapt uh, to changing environments. Um, but every time we have one of these pandemics, we learn lessons. And, and we learn, and, and just any kind of infectious diseases that spread across borders, we learn lessons about how to tackle this, what do we need to do, who needs to be involved, how do you coordinate. And I think that's a, a real issue. There's all issues of global cooperation. There's issues of commitment. Commitment could be both from funds, resources. Uh, commitment could be people. Commitment could be just uh, communicating message to others uh, and, and or following recommendations that are put forth. Uh, there's infrastructure sometimes uh, some countries like the United States have uh, the resources, but there are many times these, these, uh, these issues affect countries where they don't even have the infrastructure, or you end up in a situation where the infrastructure once was there and it was uh, disrupted by other pandemics or other problems, uh, and then you don't have the resources available. And then you need to track things, evaluate things. Unfortunately, we do, you know, we see the pluses and minuses of the, um, of the internet, uh, but there are ways because of the the interconnectedness of, of our, our society, there's an opportunity to get information quick to uh, individuals. You can get, you know, text something out to every one of your friends, I'm sure, if you wanted to. You could text information out to a lot of people. So there's an advantage to that, particularly even in the developing world, where everyone seems to have a cell phone. So there's an advantage to, uh, to having a, a communication that's, that's relatively quick. Uh, but we also have to balance a lot of the, the health concerns along with uh, the issues of other concerns because what happens sometimes a lot of resources go into one thing, but you want to balance that against other long-term chronic health issues or, or other challenges to countries, particularly those countries where their resources aren't available. So you have to uh, look at what the investments are. Um, 
you don't want to dismantle a system just to respond to one thing. Uh, global pandemics, the, the WHO, uh, usually global, cost of a global pandemic, they'll say $60 billion a year. The WHO uh, said a cost of, res uh, recommended about $4.5 billion per year for developing a global system for a pandemic. And, uh, and when we do decide, we have to figure out what tests are available. You heard a little bit about the tests that are out there. How do you detect people? What do you, what do you need to do? Um, when we dealt with um, Ebola, you know, there, we realized how, you know, we know this, but how many people travel through uh, different airports. Uh, uh, just JFK, you can pick the top five airports in the United States, whether it's Atlanta, Dulles, JFK, uh, uh, LAX, and others, and, and O'Hare, and you would find millions and millions of people coming through every, uh, every year from, from countries uh, all around the world. The role of the state uh, government in preparedness, you, you want to be sure that you have a trusted messenger, that you have relationships with the physicians who are uh, out there and the nurse practitioners and nurses and all the healthcare professionals because they're gonna carry your message. They're gonna be able to, to provide the information. Patients usually respond to, like, who is their doctor? If you have a question, they pick up the phone, they'll call their doctor, their pharmacist. They'll call the people who they feel are their trusted advisor on health. So when you have a situation like this, you really need to be sure uh, that you uh, reach out to those and as a state official is, is sort of to make sure that we work with uh, those individuals for not just this issue, but for all issues. And you want to build on that relationship that's been established before. Uh, you want to tailor messages to the communities. You want to tailor it to cultural uh, issues because sometimes there's uh, trust issues. And I realized this when we were dealing with Ebola. There's, there's a, a trust issue. You want to be sure that they feel that what you're, you're sharing with them uh, is uh, they, they believe. And sometimes you have to have someone else carry the message for you uh, that they, they um, trust. Also, there's issues of coordination and, and support. So we're moving forward on this. And, and then also, it, it crosses over other agencies. So sometimes we think about health, but health is not, a lot of these things are not just health. Take, take this whole issue of Zika. The mosquitoes, it's water, it's environment. It, it crosses in a lot of different areas of, of, um, of our society. And we really sort of have to tackle those uh, when we move forward, when we do any kind of response. And, and this one is with, let's say, environment. But there are other kinds of infectious uh, diseases as well. I will mention one thing, because if I forget, because I may not mention question. You also have to look at these things. We were talking about this before, about infectious diseases that are, uh, this is an important point, contagious and not contagious. And I always think about these things, because a lot of times people mix up infectious and contagious, and they're not. I mean, there are infectious diseases that are contagious, like flu, right? And then there are non-contagious infectious diseases uh, that, that, that you get, but nobody else is going to get. And then on the contagious ones, you should break those down, sort of what are respiratory infectious diseases that are contagious, what are ones that are from body secretions, and what are sort of sexually transmitted diseases as well. And then you look at the mortality, morbidity from those. And I think that when you start to look at that as a framework, you could figure out, like, where we are on that, um, on that uh, sort of algorithm as we, as we work, uh, work through on that. So I will leave, I, I, there's a lot of things I could bring up about uh, states and as well, but we could do that in Q&A. Okay, great, thanks, thanks. Hi, um, so I'm a reporter. I've been a reporter for a very long time, as you've heard. In 2003, I was relatively new to the health beat. I was working in Toronto for the Canadian press, which is the equivalent of the Associated Press here. And um, I had my first experience covering an outbreak before the world knew that there was a thing called SARS, before SARS had a name, it was already in Toronto. And so by the time the WHO issued an alert telling everybody around the world to be on the lookout for this new disease that was at that point nameless and call called an atypical pneumonia, it was already racing through Toronto hospitals. It was a 
horrible time for many people in Toronto for healthcare workers who got sick and brought the infection home to their families, and terrible times because SARS didn't spread very well, but it spread in close con when you had close contact with somebody who was sick, and so it tended to you know, cluster in families, and some of the people who died, multiple members of the same family were sick and, and sometimes died. So it was a terrible, terrible time for some people in the community, and it, the community took a huge hit. I was relatively new to Toronto, and I thought downtown Toronto was kind of quiet on weekends. It was only a couple of years later that I realized that that was actually because of SARS. There was plenty of activity in downtown Toronto on, on weekends. Um, for me, it was fascinating. I was watching science evolve in real time and learning. I was at one of the epicenters of the outbreak and uh, learning sort of minute by minute with the scientists and the, the people in the hospitals who were treating these patients how this thing was evolving. And I got really hooked. I have to say I love outbreaks. It's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. So. Um, over the years, I've covered a bunch of them. I've, I covered bird flu very, very closely. I um, covered MERS that you heard about, the disease in the Middle East that seems to jump from camels to people. I uh, worked for years covering the development of Ebola vaccines and, um, and wrote a lot about Ebola in the past couple of years. And then Zika arrived. And I remember last November looking at the WHO website one afternoon I keep an eye on something that's called, their, they have an, a thing that's called a DAWN, a disease outbreak notice. And I saw, and, and these diseases are, are always uh, infectious diseases. And I saw microcephaly in Brazil, and I thought, microcephaly is not an infectious disease, what's going on? So I read this thing and thought, ooh, I've been hearing a little bit about this Zika thing, but I hadn't really been paying such close attention because there were other things going on. And I thought, oh, I think I need to start watching this. And um, I watched for a while, and then early January started writing and haven't written about anything else since. And actually don't really, unless flu season, which has been very slow to take off this year, unless it sort of picks up, I don't anticipate writing about anything else very soon. You know, every time I, one of these things happens, it's um, interesting because there are commonalities to them. Outbreaks, you know, garner a lot of interest. You have, you don't get enough sleep. Uh, and, and people are, are really concerned. But there are also differences. So, you know, people who want to say, we need to learn the lessons from Ebola, we definitely need to learn the lessons of Ebola. But uh, some of the lessons from Ebola don't really apply in this circumstance, and we can go into that if you want to, to learn more about that in the question and answer period. Um, this one's fascinating. It's challenging as a reporter because, as you've heard, it's a disease that for most people is inconsequential. I mean, the reason why very little is known about it at this point is because for most people it's inconsequential. But it appears that for a small percentage of people, and nobody knows yet what percentage that is, infection can lead to devastating consequences if these correlations prove to be true. So some pregnant women, if infected during pregnancy, appear to give birth to babies with very small heads that are in you know, underdeveloped brains who probably face a lifetime of, trouble, of problems. 
Um, and there's increasing evidence that there is a link to Guillain-Barré syndrome, which is a progressive paralysis that is generally, um, it generally resolves itself, but people who get Guillain-Barré syndrome sometimes, you can tell me what percentage, I think I read 25% or something like that, end up on a respirator or ventilator for a period of time because they can't breathe for themselves and the road back can take months and longer. So it's not inconsequential, but it doesn't appear that this, these numbers are huge and the world is trying to find out now what percentage of people face this and whether or not these associations are real. So writing about this is, um, it's fascinating, but it's also challenging because you have to do, you have to be very careful about hitting the right balance, reporting what's known, not over-reporting it in terms of taking the, the facts beyond what is known and um, not sensationalizing it. I mean, you know, the reality is this is probably here for a while. It's, it's not clear how, how it's going to continue to spread. In some places that have had it, they've actually had these huge spike of cases and then it disappears. And that may be facing the Americas as well, but you know, we won't know that for a while. So it's a challenge, but it's an interesting story and uh, I recommend that you read about it. <laughs> Thank you, <coughs> Helen. Um, we have Helen to thank as well for the materials that are on each of your chairs. She's given us a, uh, an array of materials that the um, staff has prepared um, touching on this issue. Uh, we're going to open it up for questions in just a moment if folks want to line up at the mics. But let me begin. Um, Mike, the, uh, one of the issues, and Helen just touched on it, as did Howard, and that is the uncertainty. Uh, the uncertainty of transmission. We believe it's transmitted by mosquitoes, but the question of semen and other sexual transmission. Uh, uncertainty in terms of the actual linkage with microcephaly and with Guillain-Barre. Um, how, in fact, do we deal with those questions of uncertainty? I mean, the public wants information. They want it quickly. But we're dealing in a world where there's some question as to what do we actually know? I mean, you touched on the sense that we knew these things, but how much do we know, and how reliable is the testing? So the, there's, I think, the, the, the anchor with all of this is to start with what we know, right? We know that this is a viral disease. Its vector is a mosquito. We know the behavior of the mosquito. We know the disease the, uh, infects people uh, almost entirely or largely by, this, uh, by the mosquito vector, and it causes you know, four out of five people are asymptomatic, and then the disease itself is usually self-limited. It's kind of a variant of dengue, which is, you know, chills and fever and rash and uh, conjunctivitis uh, and uh, myalgias, and then it resolves after a while. We know things about the, the incubation period being four to ten days or thereabouts, so we know the behavior of the virus, right? We know um, kind of how to test for it, but the testing is not... Um, particularly reliable, and we know that the testing is not very available. I know personally from today, but I also know that the testing that is recommended in most websites by the WHO or by the CDC, for example, um, I think can't be accomplished, I would say, or at least can't be accomplished easily, which is one of the several controversies that is surrounding this, this um, disease, and that is that the testing of getting serial ultrasonography, for example, if you're a pregnant woman, or getting a number of getting tests, for example, and acting on those tests, um, it's fine to use those as um, uh, sort of to, to give 
uh, advice about what to do, but, but frankly, it's not easily attainable because those tests are not easily obtained anyway. They're not necessarily reliable as we've discussed. Um, and usually things like, say, getting serial ultrasounds, for example, in to screen for microcephaly, it's often difficult to do that until late in pregnancy, up to the third trimester. So the, we know the behavior of the virus and we know the nature of the vector. We know most, uh, we have a decent idea of the transmission patterns, um, but we, there's a lot about sort of testing and surveillance and how to act on testing that we really don't know and it's really difficult to measure that in a consistent way. Howard, um, one of the issues that th this raises as well um, is the behavioral response to the information that we have. Uh, we found in the case of Ebola there were certain societal practices that created greater difficulties. For example, the burial practices that essentially uh, had direct contact, although we knew at the time for a fact that physical contact, in fact, uh, was an enormous risk. Um, as a state health commissioner, how do you deal with, and in the case of Zika, we know there are certain societal practices around, uh, whether it's around pregnancy or around a variety of other things. How do you deal with the societal pressures that will put a limitation on the prevention measures that you can employ, uh, how one responds to that, and how one gets that message out? Right, so I think <clears throat> there's a couple things on this. The, um, there are cultural issues that you have to address. We, as I mentioned in Ebola, we saw that. Uh, and to get the message out, you really do need to have someone carry us sometimes who, as, as I mentioned, that, that are trusted. Sometimes some of these cultural issues aren't, uh, aren't easy um, to address. I mean, clearly um, those are the things that came up, as, as Sheila mentioned, with burial practices. And when you talk to people who work in WHO and, and others who work in some of the countries, particularly with Ebola, uh, it's, there's customs, and people are, are not going to be so quick to change customs unless there's uh, science to support it. Ultimately, what ends up happening is people start to recognize that, that the custom is causing uh, sort of the spread of the disease, and, and then when that gets changed, or there's modifications to that, or, or, or they do what they can to continue uh, cultural uh, practices and customs that they have, uh, but to make sure the disease doesn't spread. And I think that we have to tackle that as we move forward with any of these diseases, uh, whether it's Zika uh, or not, although <clears throat> at this point I don't see you know, that there may be uh, some concerns there as well. But we, we will learn more about this as we, as we uh, get more information. And Helen, just quickly, and then we'll turn to our uh, questions. Um, the public wants to know. They want to know now. They want to know on an ongoing basis. Things change very quickly. The information in this case has changed very quickly. How do you decide what to write and when? Uh, as you suggest, you want facts. In this case, we have some, as, as Mike has pointed out. In other cases, there is great uncertainty. Or in the case of testing, not readily available. So how do you make a decision as to what the public needs to know and when they need to know it? Sometimes it depends on what I'm hearing from the sources I speak to. You know, for instance, yesterday the Institute of Medicine, or what used to be called the Institute of Medicine, the National Academies of Science, had a meeting in uh, D.C. setting out what the uh, top prior the health and the Secretary of Health and Human Services had asked the IOM to um, set out what the top priorities were for research. Like, what are the key questions that need to be answered as quickly as possible? So they convened a group of experts, and I went to cover that meeting, and I will be writing some stories as a consequence of having attended that. Other times, it relates to what I'm seeing being reported places. So for instance, um, 
about two weeks ago, <laughs> maybe three now, I wrote a piece about the fact that you should not expect a Zika vaccine anytime soon because it just takes time to make a vaccine. There is simply no way around it. You can't produce a new vaccine quickly. It needs to be, the science needs to be done. It needs to be tested. It needs to be tested in animals. There currently isn't a known animal model. So they don't know what animals have disease like humans do. So to test whether the, this vaccine might actually be protective in people, they can't currently do that. They don't know what um, uh, a protected immune system looks like, which parts of the immune system have to be activated. That's called the correlates of protection. They don't know that yet. So to, you can't develop a vaccine that you know is going to work overnight, and some, it's just going to take time. So I wrote this piece, and I quoted people, including Tony Fauci at the NIAID, saying that, you know, he, he said three to seven, I think, which, or five to seven, which I actually thought was wildly optimistic, but, uh, and other people said longer. And then the day my story came out, Reuters ran a story saying that a, a, um, that a company out of, that has an affiliation with the University of Pennsylvania had a vaccine that they thought they could start testing in the summer and it could be ready for emergency use in the fall. I was like, whoa, somebody on Twitter said, eight years or October, which one is it? <laughs> it's like, okay. So the next week I saw a, a piece out of India saying that you know an Indian company was the first company to produce an Indi uh, a Zika vaccine. They were talking about a candidate vaccine, a vaccine that might actually be producible after it was tested, but it's years away from being written. And so I thought, okay, I don't think people understand the difference between a candidate vaccine or, or the claims that companies are making and the kind of vaccine you can actually have injected into your arm that might protect you. So I wrote a piece at that point about, you know, what you're hearing now is hype. It's, it's aimed at the market. It's not really, any company that says it has a vaccine or any, even any research group, they have an experimental vaccine that may someday be a product that you can get, but it isn't going to be available anytime soon. So I try to sort of gauge like that, see where the coverage is going as well. All right, let me uh, turn. I'm going to ask each of our questioners to identify yourself uh, and um, make sure what you ask ends with a question mark. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is, it's on. It's on. Um, my name is Kat. I'm an MPP1 student. Um, I wanted to start by thanking you all for being here. So the prevailing message of the outbreak has been given the absence of a vaccine that women shouldn't get pregnant. Um, I wanted to ask, in countries and cultures where contraception and sex education are not widespread and not accessible, um, women don't really have a choice about whether they get pregnant or not. And in situations where abortion is illegal, the risk of illegal termination is very high. And I wanted to get your thoughts on how governments can protect women in that situation. Mike? Uh, <laughs> I'm interested to hear the answers. <laughs> well, first, there, there's a few things that we know about prevention that um, I think Helen's business can help us with. And that is that we know that the preventative measures, that the personal preventative measures around preventing mosquito bites in the first place are actually pretty effective. And, and so one thing that we can do is message completely and accurately and pervasively the notion that if you are you know, pregnant or going to become pregnant or you have a 
uh, you're the spouse of somebody or a partner of somebody that is pregnant, um, one of the protective measures that you can take, and maybe that's not the only one, there's certain other protective measures, but one we know is to take, is to use uh, permethrin, for example, and DEET. They're all very safe in pregnancy. They're very safe in everybody, unless you take a kid and dip them in it, make them swim in it, then it's uh, safe in kids as well. Um, so uh, using um, mosquito elimination tactics and using personal protection in terms of screens and air conditioners if you have them, but particularly personal use of uh, insecticides, um, repellents that is, is actually really effective. So that's just, it's one thing. It is not a comprehensive strategy, I'll, I'll give you that. And certainly there is a lot of controversy about this whole issue of availability of testing and screening and birth control and abortion and all those other issues that this brings up. But that's one thing that actually would, would if I was you know, putting seven out of 10 cents out of, or you know, seven, seven out of 10, um, percent, seventy percent of my money into it. I would probably look at um, issues like that. Can I just be yeah. devil's no. advocate? Um, I don't disagree. I mean, I think the the studies that American uh, public health officials rely on suggest that even if the the, the virus arrives in places in the United States that have uh, 80s Egyptian mosquitoes, that they're pro we're probably not gonna see the huge kinds of explosive spread because of screens, because of air conditioning, because of the way we live. But to your question about women who are in places where they may not have access to uh, birth control and they may not have access to abortion, they may also not have access to uh, mosquito repellent, expensive mosquito repellents, if they are expensive there, and they probably live in places that don't have screens, and I don't know that there's a good answer. Uh, I would just add <coughs> so that brings back sort of the WHO, what they can do. So in situations of screens and, and, and how you can help a community, particularly a poor community, to have the, the necessary uh, um, uh, things that you would need to protect yourself as well. So that would be a benefit of having, when you have a public health emergency of international concern, this would uh, provide some of the resources, hopefully, for that. Thank you. Yes, please. Hi, good evening. Um, I'm Anna Saltrabi. I'm a PhD candidate in health policy here and a primary care physician as well. Uh, thank you for an illuminating panel discussion already. Um, I wanted to ask a question about the political response to the Zika outbreak. Um, and I asked a question in the context of having spent the last five months working as a consultant to the National Academy of Medicine's Global Health Panel on the Future Forum. Um, which produced the $60 billion a year figure that Howard mentioned earlier, which mm -hmm. is a piece of work that I worked on with a, a colleague, Phil Sanish, here at the Kennedy School. Um, that report's fairly clear that the actual incremental investment needed to strengthen public health systems, to really get, do something substantive against future infectious disease threats, works out about $4.5 billion per year. So that's less than a dollar per person per year. But we've known that for about 10 years, and there's been no political movement. The risk with an outbreak like Zika is that what we'll do is we'll respond urgently to the fire that's burning now and not install the smoke alarms for the next cycle. So how do we change that? Good question. <laughs> it needs to be changed. I mean, I was talking today with, with the Director General of the WHO, Margaret Chan, and we were talking about financing because, of course, the WHO has been hammered in it about its response to Ebola, and there have been a number of reports like the one you mentioned that have all come to sort of the same conclusion about where WHO needs to go and where the international community needs to go in terms of being able to strengthen the response. But last year at the World Health Assembly, which is the annual general meeting of the WHO's uh, member countries, 
they asked for a 5% um, assessment increase for countries, like mandatory 5% and an additional 3% voluntary. And the countries refused them the 5%. So, you know, it, you can want something, but if you don't pay for it, you get what you don't pay for. I love that line, it's not mine, I'm afraid. Um, Howard, you've spent time at WHO and at HHS. Your sense of this? So I think there's two parts to this. One is uh, you need to keep these things on the radar. Uh, and I understand about the dollar per day and, and all these issues. And I also understand that sometimes uh, from the standpoint of, of media, it, it gets a, a national, international attention. And then when another story comes along and that goes away, the next thing. So you have to keep it on the radar. I also think that countries need to, you know, sort of um, keep that pressure on. And it's not, you know, as I mentioned before, there's the WHO, but there are many different international organizations. There are a lot that work on things. There's a lot of uh, uh, people, who have, whether it's the Gates Foundation or other foundations that are out there, and I'm not just saying the Gates Foundation, but there are many different groups that are, that are out there uh, that tackle different issues. And, and, uh, and in some ways, maybe have to direct some of the energies towards them because as, as you've just heard, the WHO is, is really dependent upon country investment, but per, perhaps there's a way to get you know, private investment, uh, whether it's uh, philanthropy or, or, or corporations involved in this to, to tackle it. The challenge with some of these uh, uh, diseases is that they affect countries which, uh, which are unfortunately, you know, some of the countries where, where um, the issues aren't uh, brought to the light as much, but I believe that that because of what we've been seeing in the last couple of years, where things, there are no borders, uh, you know, as we know, and these diseases spread, I think there's more and more attention being brought to this, and, and I think that that is an advantage, and as I also mentioned, that the way the social media works today, a lot of this information will get out there as well. I would add to that, I mean, I think one of the issues you're confronting is the politics of distance, uh, which is what Howard just touched on. And that is the fact that it seems at a distance that these things occur largely in, in countries that are at a long distance from us, uh, sometimes in conflict zones, in places where it's difficult to get services uh, made them available. There was a piece, I think, in the New York Times yesterday, front page about Venezuela and how their health system has gone to hell in a handbasket. Um, and so, you know, the question is the balance between the domestic commitment on the part of those countries as well as the U.S. commitment, which is the largest of all of the countries in terms of resources. But there is this, you know, disconnect until it crosses the borders. So that when Ebola crossed the border, now Zika is likely the southern tier, all the southern states, mosquito zones, suddenly you're going to become quite activated, I suspect, in terms of these issues. So I think it's managing those issues, keeping it on, the radar screen and getting engaged because making it a very personal thing. It's the old story if you want to put a human face in front of the issue and make it one of your own rather than a distance. And I think that's what has to happen here. Uh, the gentleman on the riser. Hi, my name is Ben Bolcher and I'm a Harvard alum. Uh, my question is about, uh, for, to Dr. Zucker and um, the, 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 you know, there's a great importance in developing drugs that can fight disease. The traditional process of developing drugs is very lengthy and a lot of regulatory processes, some of which are important for health reasons. Others are just to protect against litigious concerns. What is the best way to accelerate research so that delivery of life-saving vaccinations or other drugs can be delivered to stop or limit pandemics in a timely way? Good question. I think part of it is also collaboration. You know, a lot of these things are not so simple to develop. and. And, and sometimes it's just not one 
researcher, one pharmacist, one lab that's working on it, and more collaboration uh, would be helpful. I know there's the challenges of, of regulation, and, and, and part of it is, you know, part of the regulations protect the public, right? Because you could end up with something out there, and then the next thing you know, how did that get out there? That's the balance. You know, how fast do you move something out there? Uh, and also, how slow do you move it out there to make sure that there are, there are, there are no problems? So it's a risk-benefit ratio on this. And, and on some of these other diseases like we're talking about, it's a little bit more of a challenge because where are the resources for it? But, but there have been efforts on, on the part of, uh, again, foundations of philanthropy to, to push forward on some of these areas and, and to, to move this forward. A lot of different um, pharmaceutical companies also have foundations attached to them uh, that are involved in this. Uh, uh, and I think that more of a collaboration between uh, groups working on these things would be helpful. Britain's Wellcome Trust is really seized of this. Jeremy yeah. Farrar, so yeah, who runs point. it, is really um, essentially tired of watching uh, crises occur and the response, you know, the cavalry arrives after the, the outbreak is over, which is really essentially what happened in H1N1, the pandemic in 2009. If you look at a graph, uh, the the out, in the United States, the illness went like that, and the vaccine came, became available there. And it essentially the outbreak was over when the vaccine was starting to be injected in people's arms. With Ebola, you know, even with Herculean efforts, it didn't make it in time to make a real difference in the outbreak. And so I know that they are really trying to figure out ways to devise platforms that you could sort of fast track these things, but I'm not, con I'm not sure exactly how you, you get there because in the end of the day, it, it really does take time. And I mean, in the case of Zika, you know, for instance, you're talking about a, creating a vaccine that will probably be um, targeted at pre-adolescent pre girls because you wanna get them before they're pregnant and pregnant women potentially, and the safety bar on a vaccine that would be directed at those populations will be really high. And it's also a, a, a virus that appears to be associated with Guillain-Barre syndrome, which will make regulators very nervous because there are, have been cases in the past where vaccines have, have induced higher rates of Guillain-Barre syndrome. So, you know, it's, it's not easy and you can't do it quickly. You also might as well look back in history, right, because the Guillain-Barre with the flu vaccine back in the 70s before everyone was probably swine born, flu. swine flu, right, uh, swine flu. And, uh, and the other um, issue is sort of, right, collaboration on, on some of these issues that, that you bring up. With, with. And you know, HPV is a good example of a vaccine, yeah. right, that you know, now people take for granted. But when that started to come out, there were all these questions that were- And there still are. And, and There's right, still right, resistance right, to right, The right, rates right, aren't as high as- well, that's you would true. know. Yeah, that's, right. yeah, that's exactly that's it. That's yeah. It's also overcoming the challenges of the, just simply the economics of vaccine production versus the, you know, and the financial outlay that it takes, because um, these the, the companies that have the capacity to do this and produce it are for-profit companies that have to look at their margin, right? And so one big problem, is, as Helen said, these vaccines um, may be developed too late to actually really be sellable, essentially, right. or at least profitable. Hi, my name is Christian. I'm a postdoc at the Harvard School of Public Health. Um, learning from what we have um, from SARS Ebola, we've always been reacting. We're, we're always waiting until there's a pandemic of fear and then people start talking about the disease. Um, at, web, at what point do we need to move 
from reacting to become something that's more proactive. We are investing in more health system resilience and health system strengthening so that each of these countries, they can, um, they can detect and manage the cases while it's still small and it doesn't have to be a global pandemic before everyone starts screaming. Uh, this is judo. I'm going to cue this up and then give it over to Howard because he'll know more about it. But the issue is, um, so question judo. And that is the international health regulations, I think. It's yeah, just, it's a, right. it's a big hope, the IHR sort of revitalization of 2005 and then seeing it as a, as a true um, treaty, right, among, you know, nations that decide to get together and produce a platform for improving public health preparedness in pandemic diseases. So I think that we have actually a really viable, at least structure, to build upon or to build public health preparedness and to, to grow this uh, ability to react, not only just to react, but also to plan. And maybe Howard, if you want to comment on it. I think there's, there's the international front, which the IHR is, and there's a lot in there. I'm going to go back a little bit to the state front, sort of what we did, because you bring up a question about Ebola, uh, which I can tell you about from Ebola. So in our experience with Ebola, after we moved forward and we did everything to, to get things up to speed for the state. You know, we had 10 hospitals prepared to take people. A lot of investment went into that. And we are continuing, the governor, you know, Governor Cuomo asked us, make sure this stays active and that we are able to be prepared for something that comes down the pike. So sure enough, you know, we, those hospitals continue to prepare and to continue to uh, go through the exercises for any kind of problem that, that would occur. Now clearly Zika is not Ebola and, and uh, but the point is that you have to have an investment and the hospitals have to be up to speed. The doctors have to uh, recognize and, and all the health professionals should recognize what, what's needed uh, to um, sort of keep your, um, your skills uh, up, up on, on any of these issues. And so we're, we're, we do that working with all the hospitals and, uh, and the hospital associations in the state. Uh, and also in addition to that, the, the health commissioners for the region, I mean, this is probably for all the regions in the country, but I know in the Northeast region, Massachusetts included, uh, we, every, every Monday morning, we are on the phone for a half an hour, early in the morning, 7.30 in the morning, to have a conversation about what is happening in the region. And so uh, I was on the phone with the person who coordinates it to say, let's talk about Zika on Monday, uh, about what's going on with all the other states in an effort to make sure that everyone is up to speed uh, and that, that things don't drop. Can I just make a point? You I meant. think you were actually talking about, as well, countries, not just the, 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 the health systems here, but health systems in places yeah, like Sierra Leone and Guinea and places where the health systems had been destroyed, essentially. And that's a huge part of why that outbreak was so bad. The report that gentleman helped to write probably would help, but it, you know, it's hard to convince governments to make commitments to funding commitments to help other countries build up their healthcare systems. But while healthcare systems in other countries are very weak, when healthcare systems in other countries are very weak, everybody else is more vulnerable as a consequence of it. And, and one of the other issues, and I do want to get to your questions, um, and so I'm, I'm sensitive to the time, but one of the other issues in this last go-around that we found is that countries are very sensitive about releasing data that in fact will put them at risk, either because of their tourism, um, you know, because of their own economic circumstances, the reluctance to share data, uh, and I think that's one of the big problems that we face is the implications for countries that essentially are experiencing these things, how quickly they are willing to share that information, share samples, uh, so that people can test what's in fact occurring. And part of what we saw in Ebola was this reluctance 
to share that information. We've seen it in other circumstances as well with Asian flu and a lot of other issues. Um, and so there are a lot of country to country kinds of issues that have to be dealt with as well. Um, and at some point I'd love to hear what you would say if you were the commissioner for the state of Florida in terms of how you'd prepare. But it, it, let's do uh, quick fire questions and see if we can get through a couple of more. Sure, uh, my name is Noor and I'm an alum of the Harvard Teach Shine School of Public Health. My question is building on health systems. How prepared do you think Brazil and the neighboring countries are in controlling and containing uh, the short-term effects and also the long-term with all the children that will be born with defects? Go ahead. I think that this comes back to the issue of, of uh, infrastructure. And, uh, and making sure that you invest in, in these issues. Uh, I don't know the details about Brazil at this point in time uh, as to what um, they, they are doing, although I will say that when I was over at WHO, uh, they are very um, sophisticated and very um, tied to the issues of health. I, I do remember that when I was working um, uh, in Geneva on that. So hopefully they will continue to invest. And remember, there's always incentives there. There's a, an Olympics coming up, and so you know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of other incentives that would, would drive them forward to do that. And I will before, you let me know, I wouldn't mind talking about sort of a little bit what we are doing and how I would prepare if I were down in Florida or how we're preparing now in the state of New York. Uh, but we can do that after. Right, okay. Hi, I'm Erica. I'm a freshman at the college. And so I was wondering, given that Brazil is preparing to host the 2016 Summer Olympics, how is Zika going to factor into thinking in Brazil and around the world? Um, for the upcoming Olympics, and also how should it be factoring in, not just how people will think about it, but how should they be thinking about it? You, you looking at me? Um, uh, well, it is their winter, but I don't know that that is, like, I don't think they get the kind of winter that we do that would kill off mosquitoes. You know, I'm not sure that I know the answer to that. Um, I, I have read that some Olympic, Olympic athletes are concerned about going the reality is I don't think many athletes at that level would be, perform be um, performing pregnant. They, they simply wouldn't be pregnant during mm -hmm. an Olympics, so I don't think the risk to them would be very great. I guess what the people I speak to think about in terms of you know the Olympics and I, uh, is the potential for something like that to seed infection to places that don't currently have it. So uh, somebody going, getting sick, not knowing it, going home, developing illness when they get home, getting bitten by mosquitoes if they're the right kind of mosquitoes. And then maybe you could have some localized spread if, if they're lucky or greater spread if they're unlucky. And, um, you know, mass gatherings like Olympics, like World Cup, like the Hajj, they are really uh, occasionally opportunities for things like that to happen. I, I would just add that I think, um, you know, Brazil as a nation probably has significant capacity for public health messaging, which is really, this is gonna be a, a, an issue around health messaging and trying to sort of calm external populations to see if they can participate, so that they will participate in the Olympics. The, the, the financial consequences are massive, actually. Mm. And so there's significant consequences um, and motivation for the country to message this cleanly, clearly, uh, and appropriately. I'm gonna sneak in one last question, and then we're gonna thank our speakers, who I think will stay for a few moments if people wanna approach them, but please. 
Hi, Zach Coleman. I'm a Knight Science Journalism Fellow at MIT. Hi. And uh, I just wanted to know, I was in Vietnam recently and they are dealing with the dengue fever outbreak. Um, I was covered head to toe in DEET all day. <laughs> Wasn't a lot of fun. But I was wondering, what are some uh, measures for prevention for Aedes uh, mosquitoes that are more effective there uh, as opposed to preventing against malaria? What are some for preventing against malaria that won't work for Aedes? And, um, you know, I, there's a, uh, been the topic of DDT reintroduction mm -hmm. that's been thrown around. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if that's uh, an option or whether we should avoid that at all costs. So can I just jump in on the DDT? Uh, one of my colleagues who's a very, very strong uh, science writer, she did a piece on that a couple of weeks ago because we were hearing that question. And there's a lot of resistance to DDT amongst the mosquito population. So um, it wouldn't be the silver bullet that people are, would hope it would be. Some control measures actually have been described as just brute force, and that is um, actually spraying measures, whether it's DDT or other chemicals, to, to sort of stop breeding grounds and stop breeding of especially mosquitoes that are difficult to control because they are in urban settings, for example. In other words, you probably read about genetically modified mosquitoes, right? So mosquitoes that induce sterility and other mosquitoes, those are super interesting, actually potentially promising, but really difficult to scale and to scale up, and so it's probably not a really a viable solution. Um, dengue is the same, so the Gates Foundation has invested significantly in um, genetically modified, or actually mosquitoes um, uh, that carry a bacteria that do the same thing. Um, and then, again, these prevention measures, you, you know, you said it yourself, I mean, so DEET and permethrin and others are actually really safe and usable and generally um, accessible, maybe not, you know, pan-globally uh, accessible, um, but they're going to be a key to help prevention. So I think some of this is going to be creative solutions and some of this is going to be brute force, which is, uh, you know, vector control and um, public health campaigns for pr uh, prevention. I'll, I'll add one thing. You know, mosquitoes, we monitor, the state monitors, and, and I'm sure other states do, what's called mosquito pools. Long before Zika or anything of that nature, there are encephalitis, uh, encephalitis, which are infections in the brain that are carried by mosquitoes or, or concern that, that can be transmitted, I should say, uh, by mosquitoes. So we monitor every time the summer rolls around, spring rolls around, we actually test mosquito pools, looking what's there. And this is part of uh, just the standard public health uh, practice that, that the department takes on, and I'm sure that other parts of the, of the country take on as well. Um, and so that's one thing worth knowing that, that this is, and, and we work with the environment, uh, environmental teams. Uh, a lot of this is communication, a lot of this is uh, getting what we have done, just so you know, with, uh, with Zika. We've had multiple webinars, and now I think we've reached 3,000 as of today, 3,000 or 4,000 health professionals in the state, just by telling them exactly what's going on with Zika, um, working with the other states, as I mentioned, uh, having once every two or three days we have a, a meeting for all of our teams working this. We've, we work with the labs on the, these issues uh, to tackle it, and, uh, and it's a lot about communication. And the other thing I think a lot of this is about is trust. It's trust between health professional and, and patient, trust between government and, and, and the public, trust between countries and another country, trust between a lab, maybe a CDC lab and, and, and uh, international labs, and, and trust between all different organizations that are involved. And I think that that's probably one of the biggest things with this issue of Zika or any kind of uh, infectious disease. You really need to have a trust between colleagues and, and all those who are working in between the public and, uh, uh, and those who uh, help to protect the public. 
Please join me in thanking our panel for being with us.